صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Resist my people, resist them. In Jerusalem, I dressed my wounds and breathed my sorrows and carried the soul in my palm. For an Arab Palestine, I will not succumb to the peaceful solution. Never lower my flags until I evict them from my land. I cast them aside for a coming time. Resist my people. Resist them. Resist the settler robbery and follow the caravan of martyrs. Shred the disgraceful constitution which imposed degradation and humiliation and deterred us from restoring justice. They burned blameless children As for Hadil, they sniped her in public, killed her in broad daylight. Resist, my people, resist them. Resist the colonialist onslaught. Pay no mind to his agents amongst us who chain us with this peaceful illusion. Do not fear doubtful tongues. The truth in your heart is stronger. As long as you resist in a land that has lived through raids and victory. So Ali called from his grave, Resist my rebellious people. Write me a prose on the Aga wood. My remains have you as a response. Resist my people. Resist them. Resist my people. Resist them. That was Darin Tartur. She published this poem in October of 2015. And for publishing this poem on Facebook, she was sentenced to five months imprisonment 
by the Israeli court. In fact, she served three months and then she was released into house detention, but her family had to rent a home in Tel Aviv because she had to be imprisoned within Israel proper. This is the democracy that is Israel today. April 17 is Palestine Prisoners Day, a day of solidarity with Palestinian political prisoners and their struggle for justice and freedom. This past week, some numbers were released. Over 5,000 prisoners are currently held by Israel. 1,200 are undergoing interrogation, not yet charged. 432 in administrative detention. We'll talk about that in a minute. 41 women, 183 children. 70% of those children are imprisoned within Israel, so no chance for the Palestinians within the West Bank to get to them. A third of all Palestinian prisoners have yet to be found guilty. 95% of Palestinian prisoners report ill-treatment and torture. Since March this year, 357 Palestinians, 48 children and 4 women have been imprisoned by Israel. Since 1967, 20% of the Palestinian population has been imprisoned by Israel. They've been imprisoned for things like waving a flag, reuniting with family for a Facebook post, going to school or work, crossing a street, and even, for no reason at all, administrative detention. Administrative detention is one of these benign terms that the Israelis use to camouflage the brutality of the occupation. Administrative detention is when a person is held without trial, without having committed an offence, on the grounds that he or she plans to break the law in the future. It's supposed to be preventative. There's no time limit on it. The person's detained without any legal proceedings or representation. They're detained by the regional military compa- uh, commander based on evidence that's classified and isn't revealed to them. This leaves the detainees helpless, facing unknown allegations, and with no way to prove their innocence or disprove those allegations. This law empowers military commanders to place individuals in administrative detention for periods of up to six months at a time, based on the expectation that reasonable grounds to believe that the reasons of regional security or public security require that a certain person be held in detention. If prior to expiration of the order, that military commander decides that there are still reasons to detain and those same reasons still require the retention of the detainee in detention, they can extend it for another six months from time to time. The order actually allows for there to be no time limit. So the detention can be extended over and over. In practice, the reality is Israel allows itself to incarcerate Palestinians who have not been convicted of anything for years on years on end. Since March of 2002, since eight years ago, Not a single month has gone by without Israel holding at least 100 Palestinians in administrative detention. For the past eight years, no less than 100 Palestinians have been held in administrative detention by the Israelis without charge, without conviction, without seeing what they're being charged with, without sight over the evidence, without an opportunity to represent themselves or to clear their names. So when you hear... That Israel is a democracy, Israel is a country like ours, rule of law. You can throw back at those people. Explain to me administrative detention. It's a cruel byproduct of a cruel colonialist mindset that subjugates 
and sees uh, an indigenous population as inferior to the new rulers. We don't have to go too far to see the parallels between Australia and the incarceration rate of our indigenous brothers and sisters. The overrepresentations within our jails, correctional facilities and other places of incarceration, whether they be mental health, etc. We don't have to look too far to look at the gap between life expectancy, infant mortality, health outcomes, to see what a colonialist occupying force does to an indigenous population. And they exist exactly here as they do in Palestine, as they do in any other colonised part of the world. And we know that none of us is free until all of us are free. Many of us know a concept of how a legal process works and it's predicated generally on the TV shows we watch, whether it was LA Law back in the day or any of those myriad of other TV law enforcement shows. And a concept that isn't foreign to most of us is this concept of, of bail. Bail as a concept is never really part of the process in Israel-Palestine. It's not part of the process and it's intentional. It's intentionally there to be cruel. Now this process, or bail, the, the concept of bail, of um, being released into uh, your own uh, recognizance until time to face your, the accusations, the reality of bail is not an option for Palestinians. Now, if you're a Jewish child versus a Palestinian child, bail is normal, absolutely available and given to you, but, but not for Palestinian, Palestinian prisoners or child prisoners. The fact is today, Jewish prisoners have been let out of Israeli jails because of COVID. And they should be applauded because that's the right thing to do. De-risk the jails where there isn't an opportunity for practice safe distancing. It's the right thing to do to let go of people who are, might be on bail or on remand, etc. Obviously, within Israel, the democracy that is Israel, where you're, it's a democracy if you celebrate God on Saturday, that works there. It doesn't work if you're Palestinian, where the jail cells are overcrowded six, eight, ten at a time where practicing safe distancing is not available, over and above which not only have they not released Palestinians, they've gone a step further. They've banned family visits. They've banned visits with lawyers and legal representatives. They've banned phone calls. On top of which, they've decreased the products available in the canteen to purchase for Palestinian prisoners by something like 100. There were four types of soap Palestinian prisoners could buy Three of those have been deleted. The only soap now available is the most expensive of the four soaps. They're denied family visits. Prison wallets can't get topped up with family monies. The only soap that's available is now the most expensive soap. On top of all that, they've decreased the amount of hot water available and the opportunity to go to the bathroom. Now, aside from all of that, NGOs have been at Israel, have approached Israel and said, look, in COVID, let the kids go at least. Anyone under 18, let them go. Bet you can guess what the answer Israel gave to those NGOs it was a loud and resounding no. On top of which, the Israeli military is still raiding Palestine. Since start of March, 357 Palestinians, 48 children and 4 more women have been imprisoned by Israel. There is no mercy and no respite under the ongoing ethnic cleansing perpetual Nakba that is the experience of Palestinians under occupation by the Israelis. Whilst the world's attention is diverted by this pandemic, Israel continues its slow ethnic cleansing of Palestine, creating a situation on the ground that will force Palestinians to choose to live somewhere else. 
What these Zionists don't understand, what their calculations don't take into account, is the reality that Palestinians love the land more than life. They are not going anywhere. One thing that Palestinians have been able to show us is the resilience and steadfastness of an indigenous population's desire to stay connected to its ancient and deep-seated homeland. Palestinians are going nowhere. The best outcome for both peoples is for the application of international humanitarian law. There can be no peace without justice. No peace without justice. So Zionists and supporters of Israel know Palestinians are going nowhere. And ending on on this point, Palestinians are calling for the immediate release on humanitarian grounds during the pandemic. The immediate release of senior and elderly Palestinians. The release of pregnant women, of children, of the 500 plus prisoners with serious health issues. And for those that you choose to keep behind, please let the Palestinian prisoners at least make a phone call home. Let their families rest, knowing that whilst they might be incarcerated, tortured, abused, at least they're alive. It's the right thing to do. It's the human thing to do. Do the right thing, Israel. Listeners, if you're looking for a call to action, write to the embassy, wherever you might be listening to the Israeli embassy, and demand demand that the Israelis heed the call of NGOs in releasing senior and elderly Palestinians, women, pregnant women, children, and the Palestinians with serious health issues, and to allow phone calls from desperate people to call their family members and to be able to be sure that they're okay. Israel's got a new government. I'm going to talk about that in a second and exactly the deal that's been done, but there's an opportunity here to discuss Benjamin Netanyahu and his form of Zionism, his racism, the brutality and sickness that is the mentality that exists within the Knesset, particularly led by Benjamin Netanyahu and his maths. Netanyahu and Gantz both got enough seats to try and form a coalition. Neither of them could, independent of the other. The third biggest party was the Palestinian party, the joint list, 15 seats. Um, interestingly, because, you know, Israel keeps telling everyone what a democracy it is and how wonderful that Arabs and by, and by Arabs they mean Palestinians, they have a full range of opportunities to serve within the beautiful democracy that is Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu, on a whiteboard, decided to scroll out his math as to why he had won the election. And he says, 120 seats in the Knesset. I got 58 of them. My coalition got 58 of them. Benny Gantz's coalition got 47. Now, add those 120 seats, of course we have to take out 15 seats, the joint lists, the Palestinian seats, the 20% of Israel that is Palestinian. We've got to take those 15 seats out. So in fact, there's only 105 seats that count. I got 58 of those 105, so therefore I got 55%. Now, if I got 55% of the Jewish vote, that means that I should be the Prime Minister of the State of Israel. This is Zionist logic. The indigenous people don't count, only the Jews do. I got the majority of the Jews, I should be in charge. This is easily represented using Zionist mathematics. One plus one equals a stapler. Now if that wasn't absurd enough, on April the 7th, in the Knesset building, there were only 58 members of the Knesset present. They need 61 to be present to pass the basic state economy bill. Benjamin Netanyahu asks Ahmed Tibi 
the leader of the joint list, the Palestinian party, the 15 members of Knesset that represent the Palestinians, he asks them, please don't go. We need your votes. So Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu, who wanted to pass the economy law, needed the supporters of terrorism. And this is what Benjamin Netanyahu called Ahmad Tibi and the joint list during the last election, the supporters of terrorism. He said, please don't go so we can pass the state economy bill. We don't want to shut down the economy. The Zionism know no shame. We have a new Israeli government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, aided by fellow war criminal Benny Gantz. They've created an emergency national unity government, primarily to work through the corona crisis. Three elections ended up with another stalemate, and Gantz finally broke his pledge that he wouldn't serve in a government with Netanyahu as the the prime minister. But they've done a deal, 14-page deal. The government served for 36 months. Netanyahu will be the prime minister for the first 18 months, and then he hands over to Gantz. Most disturbingly, and particularly troubling. It's from July 1, the agreement allows Netanyahu to put a vote to the Knesset to allow for the annexing parts of the West Bank per Trump's peace plan. The agreement says that the vote will be held as soon as possible. Netanyahu knows that in the Knesset he will be able to get a majority because he'll be able to get people who won't form a government with him. Israel Betuna with Evergor Lindman, the, the bouncer from the East of Europe, the thug, uh, he'll be able to get that passed and the death of the two-state solution will be absolute and uh, finished. Interestingly, one of the challenges Netanyahu's been facing is an indicted uh, criminal, aside from being a war criminal as we know, he's been um, indicted on some charges in Israel and he's been cling- clinging to power because he desperately wants to stack the Supreme Court with judges that will not allow a sitting Prime Minister to be indicted. So he's actually giving the opportunity to put one of his people onto a panel that chooses the judges. So interestingly, that's going to see how that plays out. The agreement also allows Gantz to become Prime Minister, should Netanyahu get indicted, and then call for a medial election. So same shit, different day, same duck quacking, Looking like a duck, smelling like a duck. Israeli apartheid becoming greater and greater and more and more apparent, making the struggle for a free Palestine impossible and making the call for a one-state solution where all peoples between the Mediterranean and the Jordan to enjoy equal civil rights, equal protection under the law regardless of faith and a move towards a country that is no longer racist. The best thing we can do is to ramp up our action, to boycott, divest, to sanction. Write to your union, tell them not to participate in anything to do with Israel. Speak to university professors, don't work with any Israeli projects. When you're shopping, don't buy anything made in Israel, particularly at this time during Ramadan. Muslim brothers and sisters, check the origin of the dates you're buying. Israeli dates come from stolen Palestinian land in the Jordan Valley. It's very important. Boycotting, divesting and sanctioning is a choice. You have a choice when you're in a shopping centre. Don't buy products that aid and abet the Israeli occupation. One of our standing kind of funny, kind of sad, absolutely tragic jokes that we have at Palestine Remembered is when Palestine is free, we'll never be able to go to work. And the reality is we won't be able to go to work because we'll be commemorating and have so many public holidays. 
In the past week, we would have had the commemoration for, for Prisoner Day. We would have had a day off for the assassination of Abu Jihad, Khalil al-Wazir. And we would also have a day of remembrance or another public holiday for the Kana massacre in April of 1996 in Lebanon. I'm going to speak about this massacre in Lebanon because it's important. The Israeli Zionist machine is all too well practiced in massacres. I'm going to talk about an unhappy history of Israeli massacres in a second. This massacre was in Lebanon and killed Lebanese. The Israeli Zionist machine has been practiced in its massacres. We can go back to 1946 where Zionist militias blew up the King David Hotel killing 91 people. We've spoken about Deir Yassin before, the official start of the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe that led to over three quarters of a million Palestinians fleeing Zionist terror gangs. Throughout 1948, there were many, many civilians and towns ethnically cleansed and massacred. In 1953, Ariel Sharon raided a village of Kibir in the West Bank, killed 69 people, most of the women and children. 56 Israeli forces gunned down farmers in Kfar Qasim. 48 Palestinian citizens of Israel are killed. 56 Israeli forces killed 275 Palestinians in Gaza in the midst of the Suez Crisis. 67 Israeli forces have killed scores of Egyptian army prisoners during the Six-Day War. 1970, Israel killed 46 Egyptian children and wounded 50 others in an air raid in a primary school. 82, as we know, Sabra and Shatila, the massacres in Palestine, again overseen by the war criminal Ariel Sharon. 2014, he escaped punishment, went on to become Prime Minister. 1996, the first Kana massacre takes place. We're going to talk about that in a second. 2006, the second Kana massacre. 36 civilians in that one. 2008 and 2009, cast led Israel goes berserk in Gaza, kills over 1,400 in 22 days, most of them civilians. The massacre brings international condemnation, including the Goldstone Report. The United Nations does nothing. President Obama is in transition, doesn't speak out about it. 2012, during eight days of pillar of cloud, Israel kills 160 Palestinians, most of them civilians again. 2014, another onslaught in Gaza. This one lasts 51 days, kills over 2,200 Palestinians overwhelmingly civilians. The massacre is famous for a sniper killings of unarmed people and for the killings of entire families. In one instance, 20 family members were killed with one bomb. Again, international condemnation, nothing. And since the past couple of years along the fence of the Great Return March, over 250 more Palestinians assassinated by high-powered rifles with Israeli snipers and tens of thousands injured and many thousands with life-changing amputations. That's just a short history of some of Israel's massacres, but back to Kana now, and Lebanon. On April 18, 1996, Israeli forces fired artillery shells at a UN compound in Kana in southern Lebanon. 800 innocent civilians had taken shelter in a UN compound that was clearly marked on Israeli maps. The United Nations gives details of all of their facilities to the Israeli government to pre-warn them not to attack those sites because the UN sites. Israel dropped bombs onto that site. 106 people were killed, half of them children. Over 120 were injured and four UN workers also died. Israel claimed it did not know that there were civilians there. 
video evidence later refuted this narrative. The UN believed that Israel acted deliberately. Of course, Prime Minister Shimon Peres and the State Department of America accused Hezbollah of using it for civilian human shields. African-American poet June Jordan, she wrote a book called Eyewitness in Lebanon. And she commented, The facts of Israeli knowledge of the massacre at the UN refugee camp at Kana appeared, accompanied by still photos from a video film of the entire assault. The Israelis murdered 200 women and children. These were refugees taking shelter inside the UN compound, and the Israelis knew the exact location. When the story came out, I thought, here was the Rodney King video of the Middle East. At last, here was incontrovertible evidence of Israeli lies and Israeli savagery that no one could now refute. Surely even Bill Clinton would be forced to become less unconditionally support of Israel. Perhaps even the multi-billion dollar habit of aid to Israel would finally be re-examined and curtailed. Unfortunately, her belief was naive. Israel continued to receive protection of the United States and act with impunity. Another terrible thing came out of Lebanon 2006. It was the Israeli assault on a southern suburb of Beirut called Dahia, and it served a model for the later devastation in Gaza. The tactic has been referred to as the Dahia Doctrine. Not content with his destruction in Lebanon, the Israeli army general Gadi Askenot promised, what happened in Dahia quarter of Beirut in 2006 will happen in every village from which Israel is fired upon. We will apply disproportionate force on it and cause great damage and destruction there. From our standpoint, these are not civilian villages, they are military bases. This is not a recommendation, this is a plan and it has been approved. June Jordan writes in a piece, Life After Lebanon. The problem was that the Lebanese people in general, and the Palestinian people in particular, are not white men. They have never been white men. Hence they were, and they are, only Arabs, or terrorists, or animals. Certainly they were not men and women and children, and certainly they were not human beings, with rights remotely comparable to the rights of white men, the rights of a nation of white men. Western imperialism and colonialism has long, long maligned, dehumanised the other, and in particular, people of colour, and in this instance in the Arab world, Zionism and colonialism has dehumanised the Arab to the point where in the first Gulf War, the term collateral damage was used. And it was an easy way to explain away civilian deaths in attacks on legitimate targets and it was classic Orwellian language to just dehumanise a population to collateral damage. Accidental, doesn't really matter. They're not human beings like the rest of us. And the way that the media immediately adopted that language and used it is disgusting. And it allowed for so many more Arab, brown, people of colour deaths, whether they, those deaths were in Iraq based on the sanctions that killed hundreds of thousands, if not a million youth, extending through to Afghanistan and the war there after September 11 and continuing today in Palestine. Could you imagine Israel getting away with this if Palestinians were white? Wouldn't the world be such a better place if for a moment those Palestinians at checkpoints in Gaza, in East Jerusalem, were white? Does anyone actually believe that Israel would be allowed to get away with this? No chance in the world. It's sad that we live in a world that denies Palestinians their rights and allows Israel to 
live as an apartheid state where the rights of one are greater than the rights of the most and this racist enterprise is allowed to continue for fear of anti-Semitism, of being labelled an anti-Semite. As we spoke about last week with Yael from the Australia Jewish Democratic Society, the weaponisation of the term anti-Semitism has been used to stifle criticism of Israeli actions over Palestinians. It's so easy to be tarred with that brush, and it's an evil brush. Very sad to say, increasingly it's becoming harder and harder to criticise the State of Israel, and it's meaning that many of our supporters are silent. They want to speak out. They know the injustice that's occurring, but they're fearful of being labelled an anti-Semite. Well, we want to take this opportunity, and listeners, please tell your friends, you're not anti-Semitic when you're criticising the inhumane actions of a government. The fact that that government is Jewish has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It has to do with human rights. It has to do with justice. You can criticise a state's actions without being an anti-Semite. As we said last week with Yale, I'm against Australia's actions and Australia's refugee policy. That doesn't make me anti-Australian. It just means I'm pro-justice. So join me and boycott Israel. To our Muslim listeners, we extend a Ramadan Kareem. May your fasts and prayers be accepted, and especially if your prayers are for a free Palestine. Be sure to tune in next week, share the podcast, tell your friends, and free Palestine.